guest here today from Escondido Christian Reformed Church, Vera Van Warden. She's here with two sisters, DeCorn. I think I walked into that one. Um, but they have a kind of vaudeville act. They're willing to do at the break. Um, so uh, um, <laughs> we're glad to see you all. And uh, today I'm undertaking, or this hour, I'm undertaking a very modest task, a review of all of church history and what it thought about worship. There are few church historians willing to do such a thing uh, because most of them are a lot wiser than I. Uh, but it does remind me that the first time I spoke to this conference about 10 years ago, it was on a historical theme on heroes of the faith and um, concluded with a, uh, a lecture on J. Gresham Machen. And I've always remembered uh, that occasion profoundly because Dwight Poundstone came up to me just before that lecture and said to me, uh, that uh, he sang the solo at Dr. Machen's funeral. How many people knew that? Just the old-timers in the back. Um, and uh, on that occasion, he sang for us that same song that he sang at Dr. Machen's funeral. So uh, I've always regarded that as my participation in history, and I've mem remembered it very fondly. He sang, uh, Son of my soul, thou Savior dear. And if the uh, DeCorn sisters don't occupy the whole break, maybe Dwight will sing for us at the break. <laughs> But anyway, um, the history of the church and, and how it impinges on worship. <clears throat> uh, we know as uh, good Protestants that history and tradition are not authoritative, uh, but I do hope as a historian that they are occasionally illuminating. And so a quick review <clears throat> of the history of the church I think will help us <clears throat> understand a little bit about the, the development, the direction uh, of the church's reflection on the matter of worship. And uh, since I was required by Larry McCarg to provide outlines for these lectures because he thought they would be so opaque that you couldn't follow them without them, Absolutely, uh, um, I have provided that. And you can see that the outline for today's, this hour's lecture is particularly creative. <coughs> Ancient, medieval, reformation, and modern. Uh, not only creative, but illuminating. Um, <laughs> But obviously, we do want to go back to the ancient period, about the first 600 years of the history of the church, and ask, what did the earliest church, most nearly connected to the apostles and to apostolic practice, do in the matter of worship? And uh, when we raise that question, we quickly discover that uh, history does not answer most of the questions we'd like to have answered, because we can't get back close enough. There's not a lot of evidence to tell us what the church did in the years immediately after the apostolic period. Um, but we do have, from the pen of Justin Martyr, about the year 150, uh, a, a, a brief description of the worship service of the Christian community. And what we find in that description from Justin Martyr is that the worship service has two basic parts, what Martyr called, um, <coughs> I don't know him well enough to call him Justin, uh, what Justin Martyr uh, called the service of the word and the service of the upper room. The service of the word and the service of the upper room. Both uh, elements of the worship service uh, were relatively simple, relatively straightforward. The service of the word was primarily a service of the reading and preaching of the scripture. And the service of the upper room was primarily a service of prayer and the administration of the Lord's Supper. Now, um, uh, Justin Martyr describes a few other things that go on. Thank you. After that long lecture on dryness, I, I dried out. Um, um, uh, Justin Martyr uh, does talk about the church singing. Uh, ju uh, Justin Martyr makes reference to the kiss of peace, so uh, the service uh, had some other elements, but, but those were the two great central moments of, of the service, the Word and the upper room, particularly the Lord's Supper. And those two centers of worship continue to be the principal centers of the worshiping experience of Christians, uh, really right down through the history of the church. 
Now, throughout the history of the church, in some traditions, the service of the word came to dominate. And in other traditions, the service of the Eucharist came to dominate. But in almost all traditions, some remnants of that original duality or that, that original pair continued. So that in almost every form of Christian worship, in one sense or another, there is a ministry of the word and a ministry of the sacrament as part of the worship of God. Even in the ancient church itself, there developed some, um, uh, some tendency to emphasize one or the other. In the Eastern church, in the early, uh, or in about the middle of the ancient period, uh, ministers used to complain that people would come for the sermon and leave before the Eucharist. And in the West, there were often complaints that people came after the service, sermon, just for the Eucharist. Now, being an insightful church historian, what I can conclude from that is that sermons were better in the East. <laughs> uh, and that therefore, they were more worth coming for. And in fact, uh, John Chrysostom, one of John Chrysostom's most famous sermons in the East was on why you ought not to applaud in church. And what's fascinating about that sermon is that uh, throughout the sermon, he keeps being interrupted by applause. <laughs> Uh, he was uh, perhaps the most powerful, pre well, certainly the most powerful preacher of the ancient church period, perhaps from the whole history of the church, a, an, an amazingly effective communicator. He, he painted with word pictures and uh, was a very uh, uh, powerful uh, preacher. And preaching throughout the ancient church period, uh, both in the East and the West, whatever the people thought, was a central part of the liturgy. And uh, although uh, as time goes on in the ancient church, we find uh, uh, ministers being called priests and leaders uh, in regions called bishops, nonetheless, the primary work of the bishop, it was thought, was to be a preacher. And when Chrysostom wrote a little handbook entitled On the Priesthood, it was entirely a book on how to be a preacher. Interestingly enough, when uh, Pope Gregory the Great, around the year 600, wrote a manual for priests uh, in the Western Church. It was also a manual on preaching. Uh, the church was committed to the importance, to the centrality uh, of preaching, as well as to the importance and regular administration of the Lord's Supper. So from a very early point, that liturgical direction of the church was set, preaching and the Lord's Supper as the two central moments of the life of the church. But already in the ancient church period, we find the church uh, beginning to develop, in addition to this basic liturgical direction, uh, a, an elaboration of what was going on, uh, an elaboration particularly of the notion of the sacred. And the church began increasingly to think of the sacred in relation to things and places. in relation to things and places, so that gradually the church building or the place in which the Christian community gathered to worship itself began to be understood as sacred and holy. And elements within that place began to be understood as sacred and holy. And what's interesting is that on the one hand you can say this is an accommodation of the church to pagan ways of thinking, because the pagans, of course, had their sacred temples and their sacred sites. Um, and they had sacred objects that were holy and dedicated to the gods. But on the, on, in, from another way of speaking, you could say that this is a return to Old Testament ways of thinking and acting in regard to worship. Because, of course, the Old Testament also had sacred places, didn't it? And sacred objects that were established by God. And what happened as the church developed, I think, is that these pagan notions fused with Old Testament notions to seem very sensible to the Christian community. Isn't it sensible that if God had a holy temple in Jerusalem, that God in the New Covenant would spread that notion of holiness so that there would be sanctuaries in many places, wherever the Christian community gathered? 
And you see, you can see that in the um, relatively early, even as, as early as the uh, early second century, the beginnings of the process of using Old Testament language to describe New Testament worship so that the church meeting place became the sanctuary and the table of the Lord's Supper became the altar and the minister became a priest and what he did at the altar became a sacrifice. And what I think we need to see is how, how um, sensible that could seem. After all, God in the Old Testament had priests and altars and sacrifices. And it would make perfect sense to pagans who are coming out of pagan religions in which there were temples and priests and altars and sacrifices. And what it uh, points to, I think, amongst other things, is the extreme danger of doing what is sensible in worship. Uh, John Calvin said once, the more something appeals to our human nature, the more we should be suspicious of it. Now that's a sort of interesting test. You, you maybe should write down the things you like best about your worship service. Now you notice Calvin didn't say you have to junk it just because you like it. it. It is possible to become sanctified and actually like things that are good. Doesn't happen very often, but it is, it is theoretically possible. Uh, but, but Calvin warns us that uh, the things that perhaps make most sense to us are the things that we need to take a second and third look at Precisely because it is so easy for us to assume that what pleases us pleases God. And it is even easy in that process, you see, to misuse the Scriptures. Because the, the ancient church, when it began to call its ministers priests, didn't think it was doing something rebellious against the Word of God, didn't think they were denying the distinctiveness of the New Covenant. They thought they were being biblical. They were accommodating their language to biblical practice. They were setting their ministers apart. They were revering them. They were making them a special caste. Now, of course, this seems sensible because that's the way pagan priests were often treated. So the church began gradually to accommodate itself to its culture and to justify that accommodation in terms of um, the Old Testament. Now, the problem is, once you start down that path, uh, tradition can begin to feed off itself. And this began to be especially a problem after the church became established, about the year uh, 300, a little later, with the coming of Constantine and officially established under Theodosius the Great in the uh, 380s. All of a sudden, the church moved from being a persecuted body to being an illegal religion in the Roman Empire to now being the official religion in the Roman Empire. And uh, one of the remarkable events in church history was the Great Council of Nicaea in 325, the first ecumenical council of the church, meeting in the presence of the emperor, in the emperor's audience chamber, in the imperial palace, some of the bishops arriving, still bearing in their bodies the scars of the persecution that they experienced at the hands of an earlier emperor. So dramatic and sudden was the turnabout of fortunes for the church. And yet, you know, if you have convinced yourself that the church is a sanctuary and that those who minister in the church are priests, and now suddenly that church and those priests are favored by the government, what will be the uh, almost inevitable result of that line of thinking? Well, these churches ought to reflect, then, the glory and the beauty of God these churches ought to be places where the pious Christians give their money to build a glorious edifice that reflects the glory of God. Didn't God in the Old Testament uh, collect artisans and artists to build a beautiful temple to honor his name? Shouldn't we do that as well? And so Christians became great builders of churches and they gave some of their very best energies and a great deal of wealth to the building of churches. Uh, one of the grandest and greatest uh, Christian churches in, in uh, um, the history uh, of the church was built in the ancient period, the Hagia Sophia, Holy Wisdom, in uh, Istanbul. You can still go and visit it. Um, it was a church, they said, that bankrupt an empire. 
It still may be the biggest church in Christendom. If it's not, it's the second or third biggest. It's a, it's a mammoth building. Um, they eventually had to uh, uh, cut off the number of clergy serving at that church at 425. That's what you call staff ministry with a vengeance. Um, but, but this was a mammoth undertaking. And of course, what went on in the emperor's mind was if I have a great palace for myself, Shouldn't God have a glorious home for himself? Sort of David's impulse, you know. Um, he didn't want to build a palace for himself until God had a temple. And uh, Justinian, the builder of the Hagia Sophia, uh, thought, saw things in those terms. So why shouldn't the, the, the meeting place of man and God be a glorious demonstration of, uh, of the glory of God? And you see, these ideas really follow rather naturally uh, one on another. And so there was this elaboration, this marshalling of all of the artistic abilities uh, to, uh, to serve God. And uh, if, uh, if the building should be uh, visually glorious, doesn't that say to us that God should be visually uh, manifested before us? And uh, you had theologians in the... Um, late ancient and early medieval period who said things like, now, um, what is the central human sense? What is the most important of the five senses that you possess? I don't know how you would answer that, um, but uh, Aristotle had an answer, and the ancients thought Aristotle was almost always right. And Aristotle said the most important sense is seeing. The most important sense is seeing. And uh, uh, John of Damascus, the great Eastern Orthodox uh, theologian, said, well, if the most important sense we have is seeing, then surely God has redeemed our seeing. And God wants us to manifest how he has redeemed our seeing. And the great way that we can manifest that he has redeemed our seeing is to create images of God to create images of Christ and of Mary and of the saints, icons, not graven images, that's forbidden, John of Damascus said. We can't have a statue. But uh, the, the commandment only forbids graven images. This is a very literal exegesis for an Easterner. Um, so we only have flat images, paintings, icons, pictures. But those aren't objects of idolatry because our eyes have been redeemed. We won't be idolaters. And we want to show that our eyes have been redeemed by using our eyes in the worship of God. And these icons then will help us worship God. How many have ever been in an Eastern Orthodox church? A lot. So you know that experience. It's a remarkable experience. There are eyes on you uh, from every side at every moment uh, as you go into that church. The, the walls are literally covered with frescoes and with icons of the saints and of the angels and of Christ. And the purpose is to make you think you're in heaven. To see heaven surround you in all of its glory. And uh, the idea was, you see, we are redeemed. We should use our eyes in the service of God. Now, it's interesting that uh, that development was challenged in the 8th and 9th century. It was challenged by a movement ca called iconoclasm. The iconoclasts wanted to destroy the icons and, in fact, over a period of 150 years, had a measure of success in destroying many of the icons. Uh, you might call it a kind of proto-Puritan movement. Uh, they said, this whole development is wrong. God has nowhere authorized the use of these sorts of pictures in his worship. They're a distraction. They, they uh, lead us away from the purity uh, of the church. And there was a great turmoil in the Eastern Church over the issue of iconoclasm. Uh, the West uh, tended to stand on the sideline and say, well, of course you shouldn't have pictures in the church. That's obvious. Um, the West got into it a little later. Uh, the East was much more uh, creative, uh, leading the way, much more innovative. But what all of this illustrates, you see, is that there were tensions in the development of the history of the church in regard to worship. It was not a simple uh, development. It was not a straight-line development but there were serious uh, tensions. Nonetheless, the iconoclasts lost. And those who were known as the iconoduals, 
the servants of the icons or the iconophiles, the lovers of the icons, they succeeded and icons became part of the worship of um, the Eastern Church. So much that uh, the Eastern Church has a festival called the Sunday of Orthodoxy and that is a celebration of the restoration of the icons uh, for the worship of God. That's the heart of Orthodoxy in many ways. Now, in the Western Church, similarly, uh, there were developments taking place in worship. Similarly, in the Western Church, the, um, the service was elaborated. The uh, ideas of the Old Testament uh, were uh, more and more prominent in the architecture and understanding of the life of the church. Uh, you go in uh, to this day to a Roman Catholic church and... Uh, at least on the high altar, there's the language of the Old Testament, altar. On the high altar, there is a tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, which is really just a box, uh, there is the consecrated host, the sacrifice that has been offered. And uh, you can't normally get too close to that altar because there's usually a rail in front of that altar. And the net effect of that rail is to really create the space behind the rail as a holy of holies. The whole building is a sanctuary. It's a holy place. But behind that rail is a, an especially holy place because there the altar is present, there the sacrifice is offered, there the priest ministers. And there is this recreation, you see, of the Old Testament temple as the place of worship. And uh, that notion, you see, of sanctuary, sacrifice, priest, uh, if you like alliterations, it would be sacrifice, sanctuary, sacerdote. Got to use Latin there. Um, but uh, this this recreation, you see, is essential uh, to the life of the church. And the result was that in the West, in the Middle Ages, increasingly the sermon took more and more and more a back seat. Um, now the reason for that was. Uh, probably not theological. It was not so much that the church in theory said sermons aren't important. What happened was that more and more there just weren't educated priests who were able to read and to preach. In big cities there were always preaching services one could attend. But in more rural areas where uh, the priests uh, often knew nothing more than the words of the mass in Latin that they themselves could hardly understand, uh, the service became purely a matter of ritual, of rote, increasingly a matter of magic for most people, a ceremony that had to be done and no one knew exactly what it meant. And that's why uh, all sorts of uh, uh, strange notions developed. You know that um, uh, the, every child, we took all the children out, uh, every child knows that, that magic works of power or hocus-pocus, right? Those are... Those are very old words of power from the Middle Ages. They're people's misunderstandings of the priest saying, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. They knew that was part of the, that one of the most holy moments in the service. But in those cathedrals often they couldn't hear clearly, so they didn't hear the hoc est corpus meum, but they heard the hocus pocus. <laughs> and they knew those were powerful words. The priest created a miracle with those words. And so there, there developed, you see, these, th these notions that, that the words just in and of themselves have a power, a magical power. Um, uh, the ritual became the all-defining reality. And, uh, but the people didn't understand the ritual. So many people uh, in the Middle Ages and, and later developed the practice of just saying their private prayers while the priest would stand at the altar. Some of you who know the older Catholic uh, forms of uh, worship, you, you would often go in a church and there would be the priest saying Mass at the altar and the pious would be on their knees praying the rosary. Because there wasn't, for many people, a real involvement in what the priest was doing. He was doing his necessary thing, but it wasn't crucial that I be involved in it. It got done whether I was there whether I was involved or not. So I, if I'm pious, I'm praying my own prayers that mean something to me. And then the altar boys at the moment of consecration, the crucial point, they ring bells. Now why do they ring the bells? So that everybody looks up. So that everybody realizes this is the important moment to pay attention to. 
and the priest consecrates the host and then he lifts it up and this became the central moment of the liturgy when the priest would hold up the host and in Latin say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the people would kneel and worship because Christ was now visibly present. What you saw as bread was not bread, it was Christ. And so the people knelt down and worshipped. The miracle of the Mass had been performed. And as a result, uh, in the Middle Ages, people largely stopped going to communion. They went to church to see the miracle take place of transubstantiation, the miracle of turning bread into Christ. But having observed the miracle, they felt no need to actually go and and receive the bread. In fact, they tended to get scared away. They thought this was too awesome, this was too holy, this was too solemn. And so, uh, as you all remember, the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215 had to rule that all Christians have to go to communion at least once a year, what became known as the Easter duty. You see, people were so fearful of being inadequately prepared or so satisfied with just seeing the miracle of the Mass, they didn't actually go to communion. Church had to require that they go to communion. And so the service became more and more separated from what people understood, more and more separated from preaching and teaching and a knowledge of the content of the Word, more and more a matter simply of ritual and of magic. And uh, there, there developed all sorts of wonderful stories. Probably some of you have heard me tell this story, but it's such a good story, you can hear it again. Um, uh, there was a wonderful story that um, uh, a bee once flew in to a, a service in a cathedral and flew off with a crumb of consecrated host. Now, this was a very serious matter because the consecrated host is the body of Christ itself. And there were elaborate rules to protect the body of Christ. Uh, if a priest dropped consecrated bread, he had to not only pick it up, but he had to sweep the whole area to make sure that there was no crumb lost and he had to eat everything that had been swept up. The rules got more elaborate. Maybe it's long enough after breakfast we can talk about the rules. Um, <laughs> Uh, There were elaborate rules for what had to happen if someone vomited uh, shortly after receiving the host. Priests didn't have to eat that. But it had to be be preserved because this was was holy, you see. And so the the story went that when the bee made off with the the host, uh, a search was instituted because this, this bread could not be defiled. It had to be preserved. And so uh, people began to search all of the hives that they could find, and eventually they found it. And when they opened the hive, what did they discover? They found a perfect Gothic cathedral in wax (laughs) with a high altar at one end, and there on the high altar was the crumb of bread, showing that even the bees recognized that this was the body of Christ and had to be uh, enthroned properly in glory. But you see, this, this sort of magic notion uh, was, was r- widespread. And, and that then brings us to what, in a sense, is the essential reaction of the Reformation. The, the essential reaction of the Reformation was, worship is not a matter of magic. Worship is not a matter of ritual uh, that you don't have to understand or be engaged in. Uh, the Reformation testimony was that worship is above all a matter of meeting God through His Word. And that therefore, worship must be filled with the Word and filled with the Word in a language that we can understand. Now, one of the, um, one of the most profound things ever said about worship was said by Augustine in the ancient church uh, when he said, Custom becomes necessity. Have you ever found that in your local church? Uh, When a minister suggests he might want to change something, he's often confronted with the reaction, we can't change that. We've always done it that way. (laughs) Custom becomes necessity. And what had happened in the Western church in the Middle Ages is that in the early Middle Ages, when almost everybody spoke Latin, the service was conducted in Latin. And then over the years, as people more and more moved away from Latin, 
the service still was conducted in Latin because obviously if Latin was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for us. Uh, custom had become necessity. And so uh, when the reformers came along, they were seen as radical. They were breaking with necessary custom. In fact, there were elaborate arguments that, um, that uh, divine worship could only be conducted in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Do you know why? Well, that's, that's a good guess. Not exactly right, but it's close. It's because those were the languages used on the cross to say, Jesus, King of the Jews. And obviously God had intended that Jesus should only be spoken to formally in those languages. You see, it's not that these people didn't have Bible verses. It's just that they were the wrong verses. Um, and, and so when the Reformation came along, they said, no, we need to know the Word of God. The Word of God has to be in the languages of the people. And therefore, one of the great works of the Reformation was the translation of the Bible into languages that were available and readable uh, for the people. And uh, one of the most radical things that the Reformation did was to begin to worship God in local languages rather than in Latin. And suddenly, of course, the whole character of worship changed. If, you're, you know, if, if I were lecturing now in Old Church Slavonic, the whole character of your response would be different. You might find it more interesting, and I you know, uh, hate to think of that, but um, uh, obviously it would be a whole different experience, wouldn't it? Uh, hopefully I'm speaking in a way that, that is comprehensible. I'm at least working at that. And um, uh, that's what the Reformers said. We need the Word of God in our language. The Word of God was given to his people originally in languages that they understood. And that continues to be a responsibility, not only of the translation of the Bible, but of the conduct of worship as well. The language must be the language of the people. Now, that essential insight that the Bible must function that the worship must be in the language of the people, was then added to by the, the notion that the sermon must be revived as a central dimension of worship. Uh, and in reviving the sermon, the, the, the reformers did not feel at all that they were innovators. They rightly sensed they were going back to the practice of the ancient church, a practice that had been lost in the medieval church, a practice that had been lost because education had so declined in the Middle Ages. And the reformers said, no, the ministers that Christ has appointed for his new covenant must be ministers of the word. They must be able to read the word. They must be able to study the word. Ideally, they must be thoroughly educated and therefore be able to open the word and explain the word to the people of God. That was a, a united conviction of the Reformation. And so you can see how fundamental the word, its ministry, its availability is to uh, the Reformation. Um, one of the questions in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 65, is uh, where does true faith come from? And uh, the answer is true faith comes from the Holy... Uh, the, uh, true faith is worked in our heart by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word and confirmed to us by the holy sacraments. That was a fundamental Reformation conviction. You see, the faith comes through the word as the spirit applies the word to our hearts. Uh, the Westminster Standards say something uh, similar. Uh, faith comes from the reading and particularly the preaching of the word. Uh, that, that power, that presence, that necessity of the word was absolutely central uh, for the Reformation. Now, um, that is not to say that those involved in the Protestant Reformation were agreed about everything in regard to worship. In fact, we could say that the Reformation breaks into three camps on worship. Uh, the first uh, is what we might call the Lutheran-Anglican camp. Um, these are the rather conservative folk. Uh, these are the folk who say, um, 
we want to eliminate those things that we have inherited from the Middle Ages that are intolerable, but we want to keep as much as we can. And so if you go to an Anglican church or a Lutheran church, you're still likely to see a lot of medieval decorations of the church. You're likely to see the, uh, the minister appear in medieval gowns, maybe slightly modernized, but nonetheless still essentially medieval. Um, you're likely to see a number of elements maintained from the medieval Roman mass. Uh, Luther said it's really only the canon of the mass, the central prayers of the mass, that relate to the idea of sacrifice that have to be eliminated. Uh, for the rest, we can keep the mass. Um, and in fact, most of the mass uh, is readings from Scripture. Uh, I was struck, I don't know if you were, uh, by the juxtaposition of the funerals of Richard Nixon and Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. Um, you probably all have better things to do with your time than watch such television uh, spectacles, but nonetheless, uh, I as a church historian sort of have to watch these things, uh, <laughs> stay current. One of the things that struck me uh, just about the service, I'm not commenting on the character of the deceased in either case, uh, but one of the things that struck me about the service was how much more Bible reading there was in Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis' Requiem Mass than there was in Richard Nixon's Protestant funeral. It struck me as a great irony that there was a lot more of the Bible in the Catholic service than there was in the Protestant service. Uh, the Mass had a lot of Bible reading in it. The problem was nobody knew that because it was all read in Latin. Uh, and so the conservative wing of the Protestants, you might say, the, the more traditionalist wing, the Anglicans and the Lutherans said, let's keep as much as we can of the old stuff and only move the stuff that's, remove the stuff that's absolutely intolerable. On the other hand, you had the radicals, the Anabaptists, who often said, uh, no, we want to throw out everything and just start anew from what we can find in the Bible. If we can't find it simply and obviously in the Bible, we're throwing it out. We don't want anything to do with it. So you have those two poles, and um, in the middle, the golden mean, were the Calvinists, who got it just right. Uh, and uh, it was the Calvinists who said, well... Uh, on the one hand, we don't want to throw out everything. We don't want to uh, pretend we have nothing to learn from the history of the church. And in fact, I think uh, there's a lot of evidence that Calvin was a very careful student of the fathers of the ancient church period as he thought about worship. So the reform said, no, we don't want to throw out everything and follow the Anabaptist line uh, because one of the reasons the Anabaptists offered for... Uh, um, throwing out infant baptism was they couldn't find it in the New Testament, clearly explicitly taught. And the fact that the whole history of the church testified to the practice of infant baptism didn't impress them a pound. The Bible only, the Bible radically. We don't learn anything from the history of the church. The Reform said, no, we want to take seriously the witness of history, not because it's authoritative, but because it has some wisdom. We don't want to be so presumptuous as to say we have nothing to learn from anybody else. And so the Reform said we do want to uh, be um, in line with the history of the church as much as possible. And so when Calvin wrote up his order of worship, the first part of the service was called the service of the word and the second part of the service was called the service of the upper room. He was connecting with that liturgical heritage going all the way back to Justin Martyr. But Calvin and the Reformed tradition also said, you know, the conservative principle of the Anglicans and the Lutherans doesn't go far enough because it keeps too much stuff that really is contrary to the Word of God. So if you go into a, um, a Lutheran church or an Anglican church and you find there a crucifix, a cross with an image of Christ hanging on it, can that be justified by Scripture? Is, isn't, that, isn't that contrary 
to the second commandment that says you shall have no graven images. Now, we'll return to that point a little later and talk about it a little more, but, but that was the reformed passion, you see, that, that idolatry be rooted out of the church, um, that uh, practices uh, in a more um, thorough way than the Anglicans and Lutherans felt necessary uh, would be changed. And um, that eventually became called the reformed regulative principle, uh, that the Bible radically completely regulates worship. Not cut off from the testimony of the history of the church as the Anabaptists did, but with the history of the church reading the Bible and having it direct our worship. We'll talk about that after lunch. Well, with the Reformation then, worship was remarkably changed. Worship in its forms became uh, very much conformed to the Word of God. And even if we go to a, a conservative Lutheran church or to a conservative Anglican church, what we're going to discover is the worship service there is filled with the Scripture. If you read the uh, Book of Common Prayer, uh, it's, it's a wonderful liturgy uh, of, uh, of prayers that, that are filled with the phrases, the ideas, the very words of Scripture. <clears throat> Should be. It was written by a good Calvinist, um, uh, Thomas Cranmer, was a committed Calvinist in the preparation of the Second uh, Elizabethan or Second Edwardian Prayer Book, and uh, uh, those those historic liturgies then uh, from the Protestant Church had much Scripture in them. The uh, the Reformed liturgies were Scripture centered, and so as Protestant church life took off, their formal worship was in pretty good shape. But increasingly, people began to worry about a problem. And as we get to the modern period of the church, one might almost say that one word can be used to describe um, the, the phenomenon, the problem faced by modern worship. Um, I'm, I'm given to gross overgeneralization, so you have to bear that in mind. But nonetheless, I think one word is perhaps the single most illuminating word to uh, characterize the developments of, of modern worship, and that word is formalism. The modern church got very concerned about formalism. What they said was, we are now doing the right things externally. You go to church and the service is right. It's been reformed according to the Word of God. But what about the people? What's going in the, on in the hearts and the minds of the people? It's not enough, you see, just to get the forms right, the externals right. We want hearts engaged. Of course, that's a perfectly uh, valid, legitimate, and necessary concern, isn't it? It's a perfectly biblical concern. Uh, God doesn't want us ever going through motions, however right the motions are. Uh, God wants us to be engaged with Him from the heart. So the concern about formalism was a perfectly legitimate concern. It was a concern all the more legitimate because in many areas of Europe, the Reformation was introduced before hearts were changed. In Scotland, in the early 1560s, one day the country was Catholic and everybody went to Mass, and the next day, Parliament passed a law, and Mass was outlawed, and everybody was a Presbyterian. Uh, now, um, that's kind of nice on one level, but it was, a, it was a huge logistical problem for the church. How do we catechize these people? How do we even have enough ministers? There was a, a phenomenal shortage of ministers in Scotland. Uh, in the first book of discipline, the question was raised, what is a call to the ministry? And the answer was, the call to the ministry is that lords should look around in their territories and find talented young men and make them ministers. It was very much an external call. No mystical internal feelings. If you're talented, you're a minister. We need you. They were drafted. Uh, so, but, but you see, in, in this rapid change, the ministry was very concerned how many of these people now compelled by law to come to the Protestant service instead of Mass, how many of these people are really converted? John Calvin worried about that in Geneva. 
John Calvin would frequently write, I think only 10 out of 100 in Geneva are converted. And that was on a good day. On a bad day, he would write and say, I don't think one in a hundred in this town are converted. And um, people were uh, required by law to come to church. Some of them didn't want to be there. And uh, we have records of uh, Calvin having to preach through catcalls. Worse than drums. Um, And then in a somewhat oblique reference, it was said when the police were brought in to make sure that no one... um, would uh, issue catcalls, then the people disrupted the service with rude noises, what, whatever that might mean. Um, but, but this was the problem, you see, of formalism. People were doing it But how do you move the hearts? How do you engage the hearts? And uh, movement after movement in the modern church period can be seen as a movement trying to react against formalism. What was Puritanism in many, many ways? It was a reaction against formalism. How do we promote the purity of the church and the purity of the heart and the purity of the service of God? What was pietism in in Lutheran circles? It was a revolt against formalism. How do we get people really sincerely connected by faith to God? What was Methodism? It was John Wesley's reaction against the formalism of the church. It was an effort to bring heart religion. Wesley had gone through all the motions he felt in his life. He'd done all the forms. He read his Greek New Testament every day. He spent hours in prayer. He went to the Lord's Supper at least once a week. He went through all the right forms. And yet it was well into his life when he said his heart was strangely warmed. See, that's, that's what these folk were after, warmed hearts. And um, in America, um, that's what was at the heart of the Great Awakening in the middle of the 18th century where George Whitfield came and was, uh, saw such dramatic results to his preaching in the 1740s. It was an awakening, you see, of, of people who were going to church by and large of people who would have signed the right doctrinal confession, of people who were living relatively moral lives, but who had not been awakened. They hadn't been warmed. They hadn't been converted. That was the concern. So the concern about formalism was a very legitimate concern, but legitimate concerns can sometimes lead to overreactions. And... um, One of the overreactions, of course, is that you turn your efforts to warm hearts into just another form. Puritanism became rather formal. Methodism became rather formal. Revivalism became rather formal. And uh, if you want an interesting book on that, you should look at uh, uh, Ian Murray's book, uh, Revival and Revivalism, because by the early 19th century, revival had become its own kind of form. And in its passion to bring life, again, you see, a praiseworthy goal, but in its passion to bring life, it had begun to take on some really unbiblical characteristics. And the, uh, uh, the great prophet of that movement, the, great, the greatest spokesman for revivalism, particularly in the early 19th century, was um, Charles Grandison Finney a Presbyterian. Presbyterians have a lot to answer for. Charles Grandison Finney was converted by a Presbyterian and uh, he was a Presbyterian minister through his early ministry and uh, then when the Presbyterians finally were about to go after him, he became a Congregationalist uh, to avoid discipline. But uh, if you read uh, uh, Finney's uh, lectures on revival, uh, they give you the heart of what was to characterize much of American revivalism. And one of the things so wonderful about Finney is he's so honest. Now, he remains a, an absolute Pelagian. He doesn't understand the first thing about grace. Uh, but but he, he lays out for you exactly uh, what he's thinking and, and, and what he believes. And in his lectures on revival, right at the beginning, this is what he says. The function of the revivalist is to awaken latent or as he puts it, dormant moral powers. 
You have all the moral power you need to live for God. The problem is you're asleep. Now, the function of the preacher then is to wake you up. Uh, the function of the preacher is not really to be a channel of grace because you don't need grace. You have, all the, you have all the power to live for God that you need. Now, God might uh, come along with grace and help you out a little bit, but you don't need grace. You have everything within you that you need. You have a free will. You just need to exercise it. Now, how can the preacher, Finney says, help you exercise your free will? Well, there's one word. See, again, easy to reduce these things. One word. The one word for Finney is excitement. You will be more likely to wake up if you're excited. Amen. Who said that? Who said that? Board meeting. Now, we, we Reformed people, of course, have uh, uh, tried to stand against Finney by making all of our gatherings as boring as humanly possible <laughs> so that we'll never be accused of being exciting. But, but that, was his, that was his great notion. We need to be exciting. Now, uh, excitement comes in a variety of forms. Uh, Finney, and I think this is why it took so many Orthodox people so long to catch on to Finney, Finney's notion of excitement was, by and large, being a hellfire and damnation preacher. He preached sin. He preached the horrors and dangers of hell. He, that, that was his notion of excitement. He wanted to wake people up by letting them see in, in, in dramatic terms how great their danger was. And so when he preached sin and hellfire and judgment and the need of repentance and conversion, for many of his listeners he sounded pretty orthodox. Could have almost thought he was reformed. All that sin, sin, sin. But you see, as you listen more closely, the whole, the whole motive behind it, the whole direction of what he was doing was to work people up. And so he had a, an empty bench up front called the anxious bench. And when you got anxious about your spiritual condition, you came and sat in the front. It was the, it was the sinners who sat in front. It was the unconverted who sat in front. Those who particularly needed to be preached at. <laughs> you see? And, and so people would, would make their way forward to be preached at by name, prayed for by name, until their dormant moral powers would be awakened and they would be excited enough to convert themselves. One of Finney's most uh, famous sermons was uh, um, Sinners Bound to Make for Themselves New Hearts. Now, don't groan too much. I used to groan like that until I realized that's a quotation from Ezekiel 18. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, we, we don't want to get distracted. Um, um, uh, that was Finney's goal, you see. Excitement. Well, now, if you begin with the principle that what is necessary is excitement so that the, the latent free will will be moved, in what forms can excitement come? Well, it can come from a hellfire and damnation preacher. Or it can come from a Dwight L. Moody who gathers large crowds and has a wonderful choir and makes everybody feel warm and, and affirmed and who preaches love. Uh, uh, Moody, quite in contrast to Finney, was a great preacher of the love of God. Uh, and yet, in a strange sort of way, he's in the Finney tradition because he too is creating massed gatherings that are exciting, although in a different way from Finney's. And so you'll not be surprised, I think, to realize that um, excitement can also come in the form of drums. You see, Pentecostalism is just the latest effort to overcome formalism. It, it is the latest effort to marshal excitement in the service of God. You know, why does the devil get all the good music? I think Amy Semple McPherson said that. Why does the devil get all the good music? If, if we like to, to tap our toes to exciting music um, in the bar, why shouldn't that exciting music be used in the church to serve God? 
If a drumbeat will get us uh, excited at the football game, why not use it to get us excited in the church? Excitement's excitement. If you can work people up, you see, so that their dormant moral powers will be engaged, you will have done a good thing. Now, of course, what a, a, a cynic, which is to say a Calvinist, might observe is that when you stand back and look at the phenomenon, whether it's Finneyite revivalism or Moodyite revivalism or Pentecostal revivalism, is that these movements all develop their own forms, don't they? If you study a Pentecostal, uh, Pentecostal gatherings, you can predict with absolute certainty the moment at which the hands will go in the air. Um, now, that's not to say whether it's good or bad or indifferent, but it, it's a form to which people conform. And, and that's the problem. You see, any form eventually becomes a form, which is no longer exciting. One of the most fascinating things, I think, largely neglected uh, in Finney's lectures is his statement, of course, this approach of excitement cannot long continue. Because, he says, the human body, long exposed to excitement, will break down, and so will the church. But, he says, as a good post-millennialist, Finney, you see, Presbyterian post-millennialist, as a good post-millennialist, he said, since the millennium is only three years away if Christians do their duty, we can use excitement now because it doesn't need to go on for very long. Well, amongst other things, Finney proved he wasn't a prophet. <laughs> but you see, even Finney recognized, again, the part of his, uh, of his honesty, that excitement long continued is a dangerous business. And even in the 19th century, they said the danger with camp meetings was that too often more souls were begotten than saved. Some of you are a little slower than others on that one. Um, the problem is, you see, rising excitement doesn't remain just religious excitement. It tends to spill over into other areas of life. But this revivalism caught on, particularly in America, because it was so effectively in touch with American culture. It was very individualistic. You came one at a time to Christ. It was very non-doctrinal. You didn't have to have a whole elaborate doctrine. You didn't have to hand them the Westminster Confession of Faith. Just, just a sermon of the simple gospel was all that was required. It was rather pragmatic. Do whatever it takes to excite them. It was pretty undisciplined. And you see, Pentecostalism, in a sense, is the ideal religion for Americans at the end of the 20th century. It fits in ideally with our culture. Individualistic, undisciplined, pragmatic. Pentecostalism works. It feels right for many people in our culture. It seems sensible. Just as it seemed sensible for ancient Christians to build gold-filled palaces for God and call them cathedrals, Today, for many people, it seems sensible that we should be worshiping God with a synthesizer and a drum and that I should be able to dance in the aisles and do my own individualistic thing because that's our culture. And the problem it poses, you see, is for us reformed types because at every point we stand against the culture. We are not pragmatic at our best. We're principled. We are not undisciplined at our best. We're disciplined. We're not individualistic at our best. We're communal. We're not democratic at our best. We believe in office and authority. And we're not anti-intellectual at our best. We believe in a comprehensive theology summarized in long confessional statements. So you're all out of it. And I think the Reformed churches have to undertake the burden and the responsibility and, in a certain sense, the joy of being out of it. 
Aren't you thankful you don't have drums? It's a recurring theme uh, of this conference. But, but you see, we can, we can beat up on ourselves and say, why aren't we successful the way the Pentecostals are? Because we really stand for something quite different. We don't have to say the Pentecostals aren't Christians. We don't have to badmouth them and be, be nasty and mean about them. But we have to say we have a very different vision of what Christianity is meant to be. And it's a vision that doesn't accord very well with our culture. It's not going to seem right initially to lots of people. Uh, but my hope is that the day's coming when it may seem more right because our culture is in such a mess. It may be that if we bear faithful testimony to the importance of thinking, to the importance of principle, to the importance of discipline, to the importance of community, there may be a day when people will wake up by the Spirit of God and say, boy, that really is what we need. And it would be a great shame if we had given away our heritage for a mess of pottage when precisely what God needs of us is to bear faithful testimony to what he teaches in his word. And after the break, that's what we'll turn to, the subject of what he teaches in his word about these things. Thank you.